Good Friday is the day set aside to consider Jesus, to, as our reading in Hebrews said, to fix our eyes upon him, to open our hearts to him, to affirm our commitment to follow him. And let's do that tonight through these first few verses of Hebrews 12. If you want to look, please, at your reading in your order of service. We'll spend a few minutes here looking at this passage in Hebrews. By way of a bit of background, the biblical book of Hebrews was written to a group of suffering Christians who were confused by their suffering and spiritually depressed. And the tone of the book, especially in this chapter and the chapter before it, is to encourage them to keep running the race. You'll note that the passage starts with this logical connective, therefore. The therefore is meant to take us back, of course, to chapter 11. And what's in chapter 11, if you haven't read it for a while, it's what we sometimes call the great kind of hall of fame of of people who loved and served God through their life. So the writer of Hebrews says, now thinking of these people and their great faith in God, how they were heroes as followers of God, he then encouraging these Christians to run the race marked out before them, uses this mental imagery of like being in a stadium, being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And this teaches us that there is an eternal dimension to Christian community. And that among the people of God, there is a connection for all time. And so the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that this great cloud of witnesses who is now dead and sees things for as they actually are, those who see the beautiful intention of God on earth through his own people, the writer of Hebrews wants them to become for us the interpreters to give us meaning for life. Or you might say to give us a worldview. Makes perfect sense to me that people blown to bits would say, God, where are you? And our artwork tonight teaches us this. I was ahead of you, bearing the pain, suffering, making it so that someday, though your body might be destroyed, you will be a part of that great cloud of witnesses and sin, and suffering, and evil, and disease, and the wickedness of humanity will all be one day made sense through this interpreted key. So it's meant to give us something like a worldview. My friend Dallas Willard wrote a book called Knowing Christ Today, and and in it he was just writing about the problems that human beings have today, kind of just grappling with truth and feeling like they can know truth, hold on to truth, pass on truth. And in a section where he's talking about worldview, Dallas writes this, much of our worldview lies outside of our consciousness in the moment of action. Did you catch that? Much of our worldview, that which animates us and energizes us, lies outside of our consciousness in the moment we're speaking or acting. This is why we live with so many regrets, right? I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that, right? Because what animates us is often subconscious or pre-conscious. But we all do have worldviews, and they radiate throughout our life as like background assumptions and thoughts, Dallas said, that are too deep for words. 
What we assume to be real and what we assume to be valuable will govern our attitudes and our actions, period. And so the writer of Hebrews is wanting to pull back the curtains on history and say that those who are in the great cloud of witnesses, those who now see from the perspective of God, they see a different world. They have a different worldview. And so these witnesses, they now see with full regret. For every idle, mean word, they now see with absolute full regret. But with every tear, the book of Revelation says, having been wiped away in the presence of God. They see no longer, thinking of Paul's words, through a glass darkly, but they now see with full clarity and with 100% faith in the unfolding story of God. Thus, the writer of Hebrews says, when you're trying to make sense of life, bear in mind, let it shape your meaning and your worldview, this great cloud of witnesses. And then secondly, if you look at your text, to fix your eyes on Jesus. This Jesus who endured the cross. And you know, the cross was not some great surprise to Jesus. Like, oh no, they've come for me. Can you imagine getting up every day of your life knowing that something like this, we can't know that he knew every little detail. We can't know what he knew for sure. But he got up pretty much every day of his adult life knowing something like this was coming. It was the central and defining element of his whole life. He didn't just endure the cross for a few hours. He endured the weight of it his whole life. As the reading in Isaiah said, despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So we might ask the writer of Hebrews, well, why fix our eyes on Jesus? And the answer is, again from Isaiah, because we all like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. And something needed to be done to that. Somebody needed to gather the people of God back around a different worldview. You will make no bigger decision in your life than what your worldview is. Godward or agnostic or atheistic, but as soon as you pick a worldview, and as soon as you pick a teacher to teach you into that worldview, you have made the determinative decision of your life. So Jesus reshapes all this brokenness. This is what, if you want to look at your Isaiah passage, this is what these words mean. On him was laid the iniquity, that is to say the wickedness or the badness of us all. He took up our human pain that we do to each other, People have been blowing each other to bits for millennia. We just have more sophisticated tools for doing it now. Jesus bears all this pain and suffering and will one day make sense of it. He was pierced for our transgressions, that is the places where we intentionally broke God's laws. He was crushed again for our wickednesses and his punishment brought us peace. By his wounds, Isaiah said, and so think of our readings from last night and tonight, fists and thorns and nails and emotional abuse. By his wounds, we are healed. I wanted to talk about this passage because of the five little words in here about the joy set before him. 
I remember as a young Christian, those were some of my very favorite words in the Bible. And I kind of always knew I had never fully mined them, and I can't say that I'm standing before you tonight having fully plumbed the depths of them. But there's something there. What was the joy set before him? kind of want to ask you to all get out your smartphones and look at your reflection in the glass. But maybe you can do it with me mentally and go, oh, my little life, I was the joy set before him. The reconstruction of my life. Now just think of all the biblical words, regeneration, reconciliation, Price being paid. Why? To redo that image into the image of God. And this is why Jesus says to Pilate, Jesus isn't being sarcastic or trying to one-up Pilate when he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. This is not about you, Pilate. This is not about Caesar. This is not about a bunch of angry Jews. This is not a bunch of Romans who are worried that the, this Jewish sect is going to get, you know, foment, you know, some sort of badness and we're all going to get in trouble with Caesar. This, that, those are all historical facts, but they're not what's going on. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you have to pay attention to our art. That's the interpretive key. This is what explains everything. This is why Jesus is the towering figure of all human history. And I say with all respect that no religion has anybody who can touch him. If I'm wrong, tell me the story. Who else died for humanity? Whoever taught like he taught. Whoever did the things he did. This is why he's the interpretive key. This is not a religious statement. This is not a Christian statement. This is just like manifestly true. They're, I know we're confused about it today. I understand pluralism. I get relativism. I understand the social, political, progressive era we're living in. I get all that and have total patience with it as, as much as I can as a fallible man. But this remains. It just stands towering in all of human history, this act of God in Christ. And Jesus gets there because of the joy, he says, that's set before him. I thought in the last couple of days, this is odd, that there was a joy set before him because as we read last night, I think it was, Jesus was in deep agony in the garden. Didn't seem to be a lot of joy there, right? Like, how do we reconcile those statements? He's in deep agony, saying, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please let, it, please let it pass. Yet this writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was animated by joy. And here's why. And here, by the way, I want to set before you a great key to Christian spirituality. Because at the very heart, core, center of Jesus' joy was obedience to his Father. That was the source of his joy when it was all said and done. But you all remember these words. Clean your room. Take out the trash. Be home early. And we all said what? No, I don't want to. Precisely. We didn't want to. 
But when Jesus hears, no, this is the cup, because he wants to please his Father, he ultimately finds joy in obedience. And this is why our wants are such a big issue. And we will never come to mature, sincere, non-hypocritical Christian spirituality without dealing with our wants. Otherwise, we're just play-acting. So the cross itself is certainly not a cause for joy. Jesus recoiled from it in the garden. Rather, what causes it to be a source of joy, what he rejoiced in, was what the cross would accomplish. I just happened to see Megan coming in today, talking about her being pregnant. Think of a woman in labor. For the joy set before her at the birth of a child, she endures its pain. Or think of all the people you know right now enduring the horrors of various cancer treatments. Why? Because they see a future joy. They go through it for their families. I don't, I've known many people in my life who would have rather given up and died, but for their families, for their kids, for their parents, you know, I shouldn't die before my parents. There's this joy that's set before him, and they endure. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to consider this, to consider Jesus. To consider means to look at things to see how they might be similar or different. To consider means to think. It means to draw comparisons as a case might warrant. So consider, as Isaiah said, that he was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter, pouring out his life unto death, bearing the sin of many. And then and, and this is the logical connective for the writer of Hebrews, so that you won't grow weary. As you consider how Jesus found joy and obedience to his Father, and knowing all of us who grow weary in trying to be obedient in the way of Jesus, he says, no, don't grow weary. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we live in a day where not much in life commends faith. I mean, you've got to go a long way on the radio dial. Sorry, that's not a radio dial anymore. You've got to go a long way on a radio dial to find anything that commends faith. You've got to click a lot of buttons to find anything on TV that commends faith. I know it doesn't sound very modern or cool. I know what I'm about to say it sounds actually rather old-fashioned. But this is why Bible and prayer and things like church attendance matter. Where else are you going to hear this story? Where else are you going to find an invitation into it and a supportive community who will be there when you fall and fail and forgive and nourish and lift you up? This is why well-directed spiritual disciplines are crucial so that we don't lose heart, especially losing heart today in the face of the seeming fact that God is the biggest loser on the earth. And I don't mean weight. Every Christian I know has a beef with God. Why'd this happen? Why didn't this thing happen? Much of the world just doesn't believe in, in, in him at all or just sort of slough him off. 
He's the biggest loser on earth. Everyone seems disappointed with him or rejecting him. But the writer of Hebrews wants to say, no, you need to compare this. You need to, you need to reconsider this and then respond. And so if you look at the text, the writer gives us a couple things to respond to. First, he says, thinking back to this athletic imagery, let us throw off everything. And the image here is obvious. You know, if you're about to run a 100-yard dash or a marathon, you know, in those days, you would take off all your outer robes. And have you seen like a, a modern um, Olympic race or something? I mean, the runners are practically wearing nothing. They're like wearing Speedos. Because the idea is I want to take everything off because the more I take off, that could give me one one hundredth of a second, which could make me an Olympic gold medalist. And so because I want to be, did you hear that word? Because I want to be an Olympic gold medalist, that then shapes what I eat, where I go or don't go, what I think, what I feel, and how I dress. I am willing to throw off everything that hinders and of course, what the writer of Hebrews is getting to here is like things associated with the world in the negative sense of the term world. There's more than one biblical word for world. This one means that which is sort of intentionally malaligned with God and his kingdom. And then secondly, we're encouraged to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. You know, that which sometimes feels to us like spiritual DNA, like I just can't help myself. I, I keep falling into this sin. It feels like something I grew up with or I have this, you know, constant distraction that I, I just, I can't stay focused. And then third, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Back again to that athletic analogy. Not of speed here, but obviously of endurance. So I want you to think with me for a second. We're almost done here. Like, what if you got out your smartphone again and looked at your image in it and thought, there is the joy sat before him. But then what if you kept looking and asked this question? Is there a race marked out for me? Do I matter? Do I have a place in this big story? How can I find it? How can I throw off everything that wouldn't help me run that race? How can I find perseverance for doing that? And the writer of Hebrews knows that this, again, this isn't like gossipy, cheesy, weirdly religious do's and don'ts, but that the writer knows, and I know, like take it from me, that sin wearies and it discourages and it deters. It's like heavy clothing that you just want to take off if you're going to run a race. You don't want to be wearing a jacket. You want it off, and the writer is wanting us to see that we have things like that that we're invited to throw off, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Pioneer in that he's the initiator and headwaters. He blazed the trail of obedience to God. Perfecter in that he's the perfect example of doing and saying what the Father was doing. And in doing so, he saw you and a renewed humanity in the image of God. And that for him was the joy. Jesus seeing God in partnership with renewed human beings, bringing to this earth healing and joy and forgiveness and justice, 
bringing a new heavens and the new earth, that was the joy set before him. If you think of John's, or the saying of Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus prayed that we would have his joy and that through his joy, he prayed, our joy would be complete. This is why the writer says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. As we come to our moment of quiet tonight, what if you asked yourself honestly, to what are your eyes fixed upon? Is there a race that God has marked out for you? In that great cloud of witnesses, there would have been people like Abraham who looked for a different city. Like Moses who looked for a future reward. Later, Paul, who said that he looked ahead to a crown of righteousness, and all these things became sources of fixing their eyes and running their race. In our bulletins, week in and week out, there's this little marginal note from Romans 8 that says, knowing that because of Christ there is now no condemnation from God, how might we take these evenings of Holy Week and not grow weary, but what, rather live into a transformed life adequate to our calling. How might this story become for us the grounds, the logic, the imagination for a transformed life adequate to our calling, adequate to our race?